0: going to be starting a new book. We're going to be starting a new series. We're going to be looking through the book of Colossians, and um, we're really going to slow down, take our time as we go through this book, and really just mine this amazing book for all that we can get out of it. So first a little bit of a roadmap to kind of let you know where we're going to be taking you. With Colossians, Like I said, we're going to be uh, taking a little bit of a slower approach. When a church is new, you usually want to move a little bit faster through text because there's so many things that you want to share. But as we start to mature and we start to become a church with a little bit of foundation and time under us, we can go a little bit slower. So we're going to take the next 18 to 20 weeks to go through this four-chapter Book, um, but what we're going to be doing is having some fun mini series in between. So, we're going to be looking at a mini series through chapter two on what it means to be alive in Christ and dead to our old nature. In chapter three, we're going to be doing a five week mini series on gospel relationships and how our faith in the gospel and our new relationship with God through Jesus Christ causes us to engage every human relationship differently. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, we no longer regard anybody according to the flesh. So we have a new gospel-centered set of lenses. In chapter 4, we're going to be looking at the uh, end of the book and a reminder that as we look at the supremacy of our Savior, it serves as a reminder of our mission and telling the world about the supremacy of our beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. But before we get into that, today we're going to give you guys some background, some literary context, some main themes, some big ideas. Intro sermons are what they are. You can't make them anything that they're not. If there's any teachers here amongst us, you know that uh, intro day is intro day. There's nothing you could do about it. But... Um, Even though they're typically dry and don't really capture the meat quite yet, what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to make a deal. You guys don't tap out just because it's an intro, and we'll use some fun, creative stuff as we intro this book, and I think that you'll dig it. So this book is one of the most compact and powerful books in all of Scripture, and it doesn't deserve for a sermon to just be thrown away just because it's the intro. So that's a little bit about where I'll be taking you the next 18 weeks. We'll be turning to Colossians 1 in a little bit. It will also be projected up behind me if you would like to follow along that way. Um, But before we get into that, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on the book. So who it was written by? It's one of the 13 letters in the Bible that was attributed to being written by the Apostle Paul. In verse 1, in his introduction, he also says that Timothy with him at the time of the writing, leading some to believe that Timothy co-wrote Colossians or served it as an amanuensis. An amanuensis was somebody that if you dictated something, they would write it down for posterity's sake. It was very common in the ancient world, um, especially for somebody like Paul, who we believe had bad eyesight based on some verses in Galatians. In the very least, it means that Timothy was with Paul as he wrote Colossians and that he stands in agreement with the message of the book. So who it was written to? It was written to the Colossian church, the people in the city of Colossae. It appears that Paul encountered this people when he was planting a church in the city of Ephesus nearby, 52 to 55 AD, and the time of the writing Paul would have uh, become familiar with the Colossian church during his time, like I said, in neighboring Ephesus in 52 to 55. But it appears as if the book was written during his imprisonment in 62 AD. So Paul's life, a little bit about it at the time of the writing. Last year we studied through the book of Acts and we read towards the book of Acts. We looked at many messages that had to do with Paul's imprisonment for his faith. Well, While he was imprisoned... He also wrote the book of Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. They are known as the prison epistles of Paul. These other books were sent along with the book of Colossians from prison to these fledgling new church plants by two circuit riders named Tychicus, who we read about in Ephesians chapter 6, and Onesimus, who we read about in the book of Philemon, who is a Roman slave who escaped from his master Philemon, gets saved under the ministry of Paul, and Paul is now sending him back with a letter of the Bible to the church that meets at Philemon's house. So we actually have a lot more information about the background of the book of Colossians than we do most of Paul's letters. And his reason for writing, majority of Paul's letters were written for a reason. There are some that are known as more general epistles. This is not one of them. Most of them are written either to correct some sort of error in the early church or to encourage people to endure in the midst of trial or persecution. The book of Colossians seems to be written because there were wolves that were coming from both outside of the church and inside of the church, which Paul warned. The church that that was going to happen. If you look in Acts chapter 20, his address to the Ephesian elders, he says, upon my departure, savage wolves will come in and ravage. And he doesn't say from outside. He says from amongst you. They're going to be, meaning they're probably right here in your midst. Well, that seems to be happening to the Colossian church. So he's writing because there are people who are coming in who are taking aim at the person, the nature, the deity, and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Without a true Christ, you can't have a true gospel. Without a true gospel, you can't have a true saving faith. So this is no small matter. This everything hinges on this. Eternity literally hinges on Paul correcting this view of an incorrect Jesus. So as a result, what you see in Colossians is one of the greatest teachings on the true nature of Jesus, which leads us to our last introductory piece, the theme of the book. The theme, I think I have it up behind me, is that Christ is Lord over all creation, including the invisible realm. He has secured redemption for his people, enabling them to participate with him in his death, resurrection, and Fullness. That is the theme of the book. We will be coming back to that theme often. I'm of the belief that if you're teaching through a book of scripture and you do not keep it anchored in the theme, that after these 18 weeks you can't expound upon the theme, then that means I did not effectively teach you. You did not effectively learn. There was some kind of disconnect. If we're going to say that this is the theme of the book, then that means it should serve as an anchor and everything should be coming back to that theme. You may have heard the term gospel centrality thrown around before. It's this idea, as Tim Keller has said, that the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A through Zs of Christianity, which means that all truth, all teaching, all things pertaining to eternal life that Christ has called us into, finds its root. And comes back to the person of Jesus Christ as demonstrated in the gospel. So as we explore our entry into the Christian life, it comes back to the gospel. As we explore how to live the Christian life, it comes back to the gospel. As we explore how to bear fruit in the Christian life. The power of the Christian life. It comes back to the gospel. As we explore the hope that we have in this life and beyond, it comes back to the gospel. So again, the theme of the book is stated is Christ is Lord over all creation, including the invisible realm. He has scored redemption for his people, enabling them to participate with him in his resurrection, death and fullness. So as we get into our passage, the main idea of our text and the main idea of the entire book is actually conveniently stated right in verses five and six. Anybody love it when you were doing a book report when you were a kid, and somebody stated the thesis of the book, like right on the front page? knew, like, man, I'm going to Ace. This book. I'm just going to stick to that thesis. If you want to ace this book, stick to this thesis that you read in verses five and six. It says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the world of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. So I want to ask you something to consider, something that Paul does not really preface or give much introduction to, but it's really profound importance and something we're going to be spending the first message on and coming back to throughout the series. What does it mean for the gospel to be bearing fruit and increasing amongst you? I'm going to keep asking that question over and over. If you want to listen meditatively through this passage and through this message, be asking your heart, what does it mean for the gospel to bear fruit and be increasing amongst you? He shares this very casually with the Colossians. He's assuming that they would have some kind of context for what he's saying. Remember that at the time of the writing, Paul is in prison He could say that every single word that he is choosing has some intense purposefulness to it. And the thing that he wants them to know is that he's giving thanks for how the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing amongst them. And the premise that I want to drive home today is there is no more beautiful thing that you could say about a church. There is no more beautiful thing that you could say about a people of God than the gospel of God is increasing and bearing fruit for God amongst them. So we're going to see what he means by it. Paul introduces himself and then prays in the first three verses. Look with me or you could follow up along here. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Lord, I pray that as we look into your Scriptures, that you would illuminate the Son of God by the preaching of the Gospel of God, and the Spirit of God would come and work mightily amongst the people of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to see something really neat in the intro here. And we're going to get a picture of what Paul was praying for by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And since this is recorded and in inspired scripture, you're going to actually get an idea of the things that the Spirit Praise for. We know that the Spirit prays. It tells us right in Romans chapter 8, that when we don't know how to pray, that the Holy Spirit intercedes or prays for us with words too deep, for groanings too deep for words. So we get an idea of how the Spirit prays in these verses. Paul starts off the letter like most letters. He introduces himself. He tells them that he's the one who's writing the letter. He tells them that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle means somebody who is sent out with a message that bore the same authority as if the person who sent it was the one who had come. So as he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's saying, I've come with the message of Jesus and I speak this with the authority as if Jesus himself was coming and sharing these words. And then he says that these things that they're writing are not written From the will of man, but they are the will of God. These are not his opinions. The things that he's saying, he is saying because God told him to say these things. That means the fun realities that we're going to be looking at, like when we look at the end of chapter 2 into chapter 3, that Christ took the entire list of laws consisting of decrees against you and he nailed it to the tree and put it to open shame, that reality. Is by the will of God. But also, not so fun realities like employees serve your masters, not just as man pleasers to be able to get credit with man, but as God pleasers who are doing your work from the heart, is unto the Lord. Both those things are from the will of God. Even if you come here and you know that tomorrow you have a boss that you think you are so much greater than in every single way, that passage still applies to you. It's written by the will of God. The easy and the tough stuff in this book are written both by the will of God. And then he comes and he wishes them grace and peace And then he shares his prayer with them in the upcoming verses. So before we get into the things that he's praying for and giving thanks for, I would like to point out one other thing to keep in mind. This is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So again, he's not just saying that these are things that he prayed for. These are things that were put on his heart by the Spirit to be praying for the church. So keeping that in mind, it should point out two big realities that when he says that he makes mention of them in his prayers always, at the end of verse 3 going into verse 4, that always means always. And these things that Paul prayed for, we know that they are in line with the heart of God since they came from and were recorded by the Holy Spirit of God. So first, let me just hit on this concept of always. I've got to tell you, as a pastor... One of the most convicting words that you can read in the intro to any of these epistles. It makes you want to read it like hyperbole, doesn't it? I don't think the Holy Spirit would allow Paul to write these things for a mere hyperbole or dramatic effect. So the term always here probably actually means always in this text. Paul is always thanking God for the people in the church of Colossae. It gets even more convicting when you realize that Paul said this to many different churches. And he had his hand in planting many other churches. And he really didn't even have his hand that much in planting this church. Yet he's saying, always, and one ministry you can count on me for is that I will always be on my knees on your behalf. There is no pastor more powerful than the praying pastor. There is nothing more powerful that your pastor can do for you than to intercede before the throne of grace to our God on your behalf. And it makes me ask myself, how many things can I honestly say I always pray for and give thanks for? I want to ask you, what are the things that you're always praying for and giving thanks for? If you were to look at this text, and this was to be indicative of your prayer life, is there something where you could say fits under the banner of always, where you could say, I always pray for this and give thanks for these people? You show me someone that is always praying for someone. I will show you someone who has God's heart for that person and that situation. And then the content of the prayer is pretty eye-opening as well. So since this prayer was recorded by the Holy Spirit and placed in divine scripture, you can be sure that anything in the text was accordance to God's heart. And of the Holy Spirit. So it's like the Holy Spirit is kind of giving you a clinic on how to pray for your church right here and how to pray for others. And these prayers are so beautiful. There is nothing self centered in these prayers. As C.S. Lewis has said, that the art of self forgetfulness, the art of repenting of self-centeredness is not to think less about yourself, it's to think about yourself less often. That happens as you start to pray always for others. And you check your will and you check your heart and you say there is nothing self-centered in these. These prayers are right in line with the heart of God, the person of God, the character of God. One other quick note, in order to pray the heart of God, you have to know the heart of God of God. You cannot pray the heart of God. If you do not know the heart of God, you cannot know the heart of God unless you're in his scriptures. So hopefully that part is just Christianity 101. And I already told you the bulk of the message is going to be about, but just as important as we see how he gets there. So when Paul says that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing, what does that mean? Look with me at verses four through eight. He says, "...since we've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and of the love that you have for the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing, and it also does among you, since the day that you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth." just as you heard, learned from Epaphras, our beloved faithful servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. So the reason that I ask you guys, what does it mean for the gospel to be increasing and bearing fruit is because that's not really normal language. Like many, I would suspect that I know at least, I'll speak for me, I went a long time before I was presented with the word gospel being anything more than a merely entry-level ticket to be able to get into heaven after you die. It was a set of propositional truths that you believed in to make sure that the deal was sealed so that when you go and meet Jesus, you've got your ticket To be able to get in. So, to hear that the gospel was bearing fruit or increasing would have been foreign to me. And honestly, the language is still awkward enough that to be able to teach on it still requires a little bit of backtracking, but it shouldn't be. Why would it be awkward when it's right here? I just lifted it right out of the text. This is, like, when we talk about the gospel-centric movement, this isn't something where theologians got together and began to devise their own set of language and rules. This is pinched right from verses 5 and 6. The main point in saying that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing is the gospel is alive, guys. It's not some dead truth. It's not something that, it's not a prayer that you recite at the end of a message. It's not something where after the sermon, the pastor starts to give his low gospel voice and tells you, come, everybody come up here. This is the gospel. Just everybody close your eyes and slip up your hand if you want to pray this truth. In your that's, that's not what this is talking about. This is, this is alive. It's something more than something that you recite or just some hand that you slip up. The gospel, according to Romans chapter 1, is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the proclamation that our God reigns. The gospel is the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And our declaration of faith in the gospel is a declaration of total love, dependency, and submission. And he's saying that that's growing amongst the Colossians. That's the point of these first eight verses. He's saying that as we look at this gospel dependency resulting in a gospel, a gospel declaration devoid, growing into a dependency, love, and submission, that this is something that is growing amongst the Colossian church. That as they repent of being king of their own lives, and they begin to embrace Jesus as the Lord of all things, what is that called? The gospel's increasing according to these verses. And as Christ takes his rightful place as king, replacing yourself as the throne of your own heart, the gospel is bearing fruit. And all of a sudden, Christian growth doesn't come from moralistically just trying to do the right thing and pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It comes from surrendering. It comes from seeing Jesus increasing. (laughs) Or the gospel increasing, like he says right here in verses 5 and 6. And guess what? And you, decreasing. Very good. And our growth becomes something that you can never produce. You can't just sit there and squeeze out a piece of fruit. I don't care. How, I almost passed out the last time I tried, so I'm not going to do it. But I, I am going to tell you that, it, that it's impossible. Um, And you will pass out if you try, and you still won't produce a piece of fruit. Our growth becomes fruit that's increasing as we decrease, and Jesus increases in our lives. That's why I said that the passage and this entire book comes back to this big idea in verse 6. Is the gospel bearing fruit and increasing amongst you? And if we go in reverse for a moment back to the earlier verses in the passage, Paul brings up three aspects of the gospel bearing fruit and increasing amongst the Colossians. In verse 4, he says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So a recognizable faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is an evidence of the gospel increasing and bearing fruit. He says, think about this. He says the Colossians were people that had a faith that the rest of the world had heard about. When you read this, do you read this like somebody who heard that in the first century? You're not reading that somebody posted like, Man, went to the Colossian church today, hashtag hands up, hashtag blessed. Like, that's not it, man. They had such a famous faith that was growing in the Lord Jesus that their faith was permeating throughout the entire known world, and it was evident to people. Think about that. They had famous faith in Jesus, and that faith is recognizable, a fruit that comes from the gospel increasing is that we're going to be growing as people of faith who live by faith and not by sight. Another fruit that he points out later on in verse 4, he says that you're growing and increasing in your love for all the saints. That's such an important fruit. It protects us from dead orthodoxy. Look, you can know every single systematic theology, and you could have parsed the entire Greek New Testament before you got here this morning, but if you are not growing in love, you are a noisy, clanging gong, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you have a head full of Bible facts and you're growing in your Bible knowledge, but you're not maturing in love, you are not maturing. You're not growing. The Colossians were known for a deepening love for their brothers and sisters. So I want to ask you just according to the fruits mentioned right here, is the gospel increasing love within you and producing an ever deepening love? And then he gives one more fruit that the gospel is increasing. He says there's an increasing hope laid up for us in heaven. As the gospel grows deeper, our hold on this world begins to weaken and lessen. And the grip on eternal life that Jesus offers becomes to be increasingly more real. There's other fruits that you could continue to mention that if the gospel is increasing in your life. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control but I think the three that he mentions right here in this text do us just fine for today. And it means that the gospel is going deeper and wider. So it should be increasing in depth in you. Again, going back to our definition of the theme of the book, Christ is Lord over all creation, including the invisible realm. He has secured redemption for his people, enabling them to participate with him in his death, resurrection, and fullness. So as we take on more of a view of the supremacy of Christ in all things, the gospel is actually increasing amongst us. And as the gospel begins to increase amongst us, we get to see Jesus as supremely beautiful over all things. And it should also be increasing in breath. Notice he doesn't just say that the gospel's increasing you. He says in verse 5 that it's increasing in the whole world. Healthy things grow. It should be growing in the world, folks. And the vehicle to see that happen is you. You know what our calling is? Somebody said it so much better than me, but we are a bunch of nobodies trying to tell everybody about a somebody. That's who we are. That's our calling in this life. And as we do that, the gospel spreads. And then he commends them that they didn't just respond, but they responded genuinely in faith in verse 6. He says, And it's come to you, it's increasing since the day you've heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. So this was a true gospel they believed in. They understood it. They embraced it. It wasn't just an emotional response. Christ was becoming supreme over all aspects of their life. And um, before I close, I have some uh, participants who are going to come up here and answer a question for me. So come on up. Only if I asked you. If you're wondering if that pertains to you, it doesn't. (laughs) That would be awkward. (laughs) Go ahead. Come on, don't be polite. Yeah, five of you sit in a chair, five of you stand behind. All right. Do we have the uh, wireless microphone over here? I asked each of these guys one question, because you know what, for me to say as I look out at you guys that the gospel is increasing and bearing fruit, of course I see that. I'm one of the pastors here. I I, I love seeing those things for a a living. I, I get to see those things for a living. But I want to hear from the body of Christ. So a simple question for each one of you couples. How is the gospel bearing fruit and growing amongst you? Sixty to ninety
1: seconds?
0: Yep, sixty to ninety seconds. (laughs)
1: Somehow no matter where I'm gonna
0: get this microphone through.
2: I didn't try to squeeze my head, I didn't try to
3: figure it out or anything like that.
2: But uh, for me, for the longest time, it was making sure I went to the right church, listened to the right ministers, read the right books. In essence, uh, leaning on those things instead of resting Christ. Hmm. So in the last year or so, um, big change in my life. And uh, remember, I talked about the New Year's resolutions. So I actually had one. My um, New Year's resolution this year is resting.
0: Amen. And what he
2: has done on my behalf. So that's how I'm seeing that fruit grow in my life. So I'm no longer worrying about, you know, it was the, the servant type that I listened to, that I listened to the right person today. It's just resting.
4: part of the church here, Um, but about four years ago, my wife and I just took on this uh, burden for orphans, and in no way am I trying to boast through this, we just really developed a heart for children who would maybe never have an opportunity to hear the gospel or um, really come to know Christ in any way, and now we've been so blessed by the Lord five children over the last four years, and um, the blessing that they've been on our lives far outweighs anything you've done for them, watching them, the fruit coming from them, especially being a part of the church here, um, being surrounded by Christian friends, coming from families that just want to pour Jesus into their own children, and that being a part of my kids' lives every day, day—it's just the way that the Lord is working, and uh, even more so when my own kids come up to me and are reminding me to pray, and Amen. me to do those things, is just completely overwhelming. So um, that's definitely the way that the Lord's been, you know, just bearing fruit in our lives.
5: See the comments that we have in the Lord. And you can't fake that. You, you, you can't fool your kids. They, they see that. They, they see what
1: because for me it's become a life verse and it, I think about it every day because it just very simply through scripture states exactly uh, where we were as believers before we knew Jesus. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin and what you walked we were dead following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved, and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God. It is a gift. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's given me freedom. He's given me love. He's given me faith. He's given me perfect.
0: Amen. Let's hear it for our participants up here. You guys can have a seat. So as I, as I wrap up, the reason that Paul grounds them in verse 6 to tell them that it's the gospel that is producing fruit and increasing is because all of these things that my brothers and sisters testified about all find their root back in the gospel and he even says later on in verse six this gospel that you received in grace it's grace that tries that now makes us not trying to rest on our own to be able to produce fruit it's grace that was breaking down dr joe's self-righteousness it's grace and being connected to the gospel that's producing contentment it's grace that was giving the Barshes a love for orphans and widows, which the Bible calls true and undefiled religion. It's grace that was showing Debbie and Rich that it's not about them. It's grace that was killing the idols in Holly's life. It's grace that was bearing the fruit. So the conclusion I want to ask you guys comes right out of the passage. If the gospel's increasing, it's producing fruit. Is the fruit that you're seeing look like the fruit that we see in this passage? If the gospel's increasing, it's increasing its reach. Is it increasing its reach in and around your lives? If the gospel's increasing, it's increasing in love. So how's your love? And there's one final application, and that's that the teachers in this passage commended the people, they prayed for the people, they gave thanks for the people, and they gave evidences of what was going on in their lives because of the gospel. So our pastors as before we go to communion are going to do exactly what this passage did in the life of the Colossian church. That means you guys have to come up. Um, So come on up here and they're going to share with you guys just a fruit, a prayer, a thanksgiving, an evidence of grace.
5: It's awfully easy to forget as we sit here that, in some ways, the most important work going on is in the other end of this building. There's a bunch of kids down there and a group of dedicated children's ministry workers who are working to make sure that the ball doesn't get dropped. In the spirit of Psalm 22. Where the psalmist said, "Posterity shall serve him; it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and pre- proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it." If you read through the Psalms, which you, which I did several years ago, just note every time the psalmist talks about the next generation. There's eight or ten of them check out Psalm 78 if you want one of the most impressive. But here's the thing. Here's an evidence of grace that people old and not so old and very young are down there working with the grace of the gospel to make sure that that ball doesn't get fumbled, but it gets safely delivered to the next generation. That's
0: tremendous evidence of grace. Amen.
2: Um,
5: I, I
0: mentioned this earlier, but
2: we used to have, well, in America, it's not get we talking about money, right? But I want to just encourage all of you guys. Um, are we in need of an An hour so
3: doing, I mean, as I look around you now, just seeing your faces and again, speaking to someone and, and just seeing the joy that they, I think it was Dr. John—I said, the joy that I think I finally found what I was looking for.
0: Amen. The reason we wrapped up like this is because it's the way that Paul began. He told the church that he prayed for them, he gave thanks for them, he was proud of them. Redeemer Fellowship, we we give thanks for you always. We love you. We are proud of you. And we're going to partake in a common meal together of communion as an act of remembrance for our Lord that brought us together. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to now look at another evidence of grace the crucifixion of our Lord applied on our behalf. Lord, thank you that we can give remembrance, we can give thanks, and we can rejoice that we have been set free, and whom the Son has set free is free indeed. In Jesus' name, amen.